Greetings and welcome to the latest edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast, produced in collaboration with the BJSM. I'm Taryn Ryan. I'm Corinne Rivard. We are both rising second year resident physicians in the Middlesex Family Medicine Residency Program. And we are thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Samantha Morris, Dr. Chelsea Morales, and Andrew Tochi to discuss the topic of athlete mental health. So first, we'll go ahead and introduce our panelists. Um, Dr. Samantha Morris is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of collegiate athletes. She received a BS in psychology from Springfield College, where she also played softball. She went on to get her PsyD from the University of Hartford and completed her postdoctoral fellowship at Yale. She then accepted a job at the University of Connecticut shortly after and began exclusively working with student athletes. Dr. Morris's areas of interest include anxiety disorders, management of acute and chronic illness and injury, cognitive, behavioral, and other third-wave behavioral treatments, and mindfulness training within sport. Hi, Dr. Morris. Hey, everyone. Up next, we have Dr. Chelsea Morales. She is a clinical psychologist working at the University of Connecticut as the Multicultural Student Athlete Mental Health Clinician. She received her BA in psychology from Fairfield University and went on to receive her PsyD from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, Washington, D.C. campus. Her postdoctoral fellowship position at the Post-Traumatic Stress Center in New Haven, Connecticut, she came to specialize in trauma-centered psychotherapy. She accepted a position at the University of Connecticut in 2021, working exclusively with student-athletes. Dr. Morales's areas of interest include addressing issues related DEIB, trauma, identity development, and mental health outreach efforts to educate student athletes and staff within the Department of Athletics. Hi, Dr. Morales. Hi, thank you for having me. And then last but not least, we have Andrew Tosi. He's a licensed professional counselor and certified mental performance consultant. He is the owner of Deep Breaths Counseling and Sports Psychology. He is an adjunct professor of sports psychology at Southern Connecticut State University and is listed in the U.S. OPC's Mental Health Registry. He works with athletes of all ages and levels spanning from youth sports to professional or Olympic realm. He believes starting where the athlete is and with who athletes are using their personalities to enhance their performance and overall mental health. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having us. So we we're just kind of going to get started talking about athlete mental health, the overall subject of this podcast episode. Um, feel free, any one of you, to pick up the question and answer it. Athletes in general are normal people with normal emotions. The public can tend to forget this, especially and even down to the student athlete level. Um, collegiate athletes are often, you know, idolized as professional athletes are as well. And so it's important as physicians and healthcare professionals to connect and understand our patients. For those listening who have never played sports at such an elite level, can you guys explain from your perspective some of the stressors and roles that contribute to mental health injury in the athlete? I don't mind uh, responding to that. So one of the things that I think is really important for professionals and just people in general to kind of understand about collegiate student athletes is that they are being pulled in so many different directions, right? So they are college students, they have all of the responsibilities of a college student, and then they are also athletes on top of that. So they're being pulled in a million different directions. They have so many different responsibilities on their plate outside of being students. And then they are people on top of that. 
And so, you know, they have their lives outside of their student identity, outside of their athlete identity that contribute to how they show up on any given day. And so there are these competing identities that they have that make it very challenging. And it's not just the kind of glamorized things that we see on TV, the media days, the press conferences, it's so much more behind the scenes on top of just normal young adult development things that they're dealing with as well. So I think that, you know, they have all of these things happening on top of the fact that the culture of athletics is very much not one that focuses and emphasizes mental health. It's kind of very much stigmatized in the community when we think about things like mental toughness versus thinking about what it means to talk about your feelings, what it means to push through and kind of minimize any things that could be going on, whether they're physical or mental, just for the sake of participating, continuing to participate in sport. So there's all of these different things that are happening. And they are also young adults who, depending on how at what level they're performing and whether or not they're considered like a star player, sometimes they don't get the luxury of like being a normal young adult behind the scenes. These things that happen in their life that may be normal, like mistakes or fumbles in their lives sometimes get broadcast on the TV and those things can follow them. So there's all of these different things that I don't necessarily think that people consider when they're thinking about student athletes as students, athletes, and people all together. Thank you. Um, And how specifically for the physicians listening in our audience, how do you think that a physician might play a role in helping with that? I mean, I think it's being aware of the fact that they have so many different hats that they're wearing. And when we think about it from a medical standpoint, we know that stress and anxiety and depression definitely have actual medical underpinnings that can sometimes show up in the way that they present to you all. Um, And so I think it's just being mindful of that and being open to acknowledge those kinds of things in conversation. As medical professionals, I think it's important to, you know, work in a collaborative kind of way. And so when you have students that are coming in um, that need support, for medical things, also recognizing that sometimes they need to be directed to mental health providers or to other people that are kind of operating as support. And so being able to do those warm handoffs and kind of say, like, you might consider talking to somebody about these things that are also going on with you, not just kind of your physical health stuff. I was going to add one of the things that goes on kind of behind the scenes that maybe is less obvious to people who are watching the athlete or, um, you know, a fan of sports is, or even sometimes, you know, doctors treating athletes is this like transition that athletes go through when they get to a more elite level of playing sports where, you know, potentially for their entire life, their whole identity has been tied to being the best at what they do. So you see this at sort of like high school club or travel levels where they're like the star athlete, they're the best at what they do on their team. And they come to college or maybe they break into the professional world. And they're just one of like very many amazing players. And that'll really sort of knock people down a bit in the beginning. We also see there's a transition from, I do this because it's fun and I do this because I love it to I'm doing this because it's a job. It's more of a business. And 
there can be this feeling of, you know, if I just make one mistake or I get injured that I lose everything. So I think sort of understanding those pressures um, that we see at the collegiate level, I can say for sure, is something that's also just important for doctors to understand. You know, if they're seeing an athlete who's sick or who's injured or, you know, not getting as much playing time, that that could be taking a real toll on their mental health as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Just to kind of transition a little bit. So in your experiences, uh, in addition to the physician, who do you think should be a part of the mental health team to support the athletes, the staff, the coaching staff, um, and even the families of the athletes? This is a really good question because I think it uh, touches on a whole bunch of different things, right? For the athlete, especially on a community, depending on the division, the funds are always sometimes available, sometimes they're not. But who should be involved in like the treatment of like mental health and, uh, when it comes to athletes is everybody. It's really a, a kind of a whole community thing. I think the coaches should be a part of it. Obviously, maybe on a more outside basis, they, they should be given kind of insight into maybe sometimes what's going on, obviously, to a very minimal level. They don't always have to be super involved. But there's also like the athletic training staff. There's, there's PTs. There's the, the campus counseling center has to be super involved as well. Um, and it really depends on the roles that exist at the universities, in my opinion. Sometimes people have, uh, like, again, at a Division II level, we don't always have a sports psych provider specifically. So sometimes they get they get thrown into the whole general counseling population, and they kind of run into certain challenges of people maybe not understanding them. Going back to your last question of, like, just not understanding all the hats that they have. And one thing we didn't talk about there was, like, the sports gambling. That only adds an entire whole different stressor to it that didn't exist a few years ago. So there's a whole aspect to that that also touches it but the, the team of mental health providers should be kind of a community and uh, we've talked about this before especially with physicians they should be included as well because there's all these different kinds of aspects that come up that sometimes again in our world we kind of always rule out medical first and then we deal with the mental health stuff so it's really important that we're always in communication and having that constant contact with people yeah I would just add to that as well so I think you know for us we think about wanting to provide services that are accessible and equitable. So we have formal services of individual therapy, but we also have informal services that we offer as well. Um, and trying to be both present in our counseling center, but also in spaces where athletes can access us easily. So there's that piece of just kind of thinking about how we can be available to them, given that their schedules and things like that. And then from just a general standpoint, we operate as a multidisciplinary team. So we have psychologists like Sam and myself on our team. We have our team physicians that are on our team. We have nutritionists on our team. We have athletic trainers on our team. We have a variety, case management, all of these different kinds of people that are involved we try not to operate from like a one size fit all approach. We really tailor it to the needs of the specific athlete. So we have our general kind of people that we collaborate with, but then we think about what is this individual student coming in with? What do they need? What are their presenting concerns? And based on what's happening with them, that's kind of who we decide gets a seat at the table for that individual student. And as Andrew was kind of talking about as well, we also try to factor in the, the notion that this is a confidential service that we're providing to them. So we have to collaborate with the student to secure their release of information, that they're comfortable with the people that we are wanting to bring on board and have that, those kinds of conversations about what information gets shared, what information doesn't get shared, what's pertinent to the issue 
that you're coming in with. What do people need to know? What people don't need to know? So these are all the kind of factors, but I think it's really about, you know, knowing who are the key players, but also tailoring it to the individual needs of the student athlete that is sitting in front of you. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, both of you. In areas where there might be lower resource, so colleges that don't have a dedicated, you know, um, licensed professional for mental health services um, and may only have a team doc who like volunteers their time on the side, something like that. Where would you recommend places like that get their resources from? Are there any good resources available that you know of? Easiest resource for something like that would probably be like a psychology today something like that it's a it's a really one-stop shop for something that they're kind of looking for when it comes to like strictly like mental health providing right but usually most college campuses have some sort of a college counseling center so I would advise the student athletes to always check there first uh, it's usually it's usually cheaper or, or free because considering it's given through the college but sometimes there's always aspects of it that can be funded in different ways um, so there's there's the, those are two resources I would think of like their own college campus or psychology today. It's a real simple, easy platform to use. And you can kind of search by a whole variety of different characteristics that you're looking for in someone. Thanks. Yeah, it's a resource that I also recommend in the office too. So it's really relatable. So more and more research is coming out about the connection between physical injury and mental health. In the latest physician statement about mental health issues, it mentions the psychological response to physical injury or illness. Would you guys be able to speak to your experience regarding this link and explain this to our audience? Yeah, I can, I can start off. I'm really glad you're asking this question because I think it's really important and it's not talked about very often. I was just pulling up some research and I think we know that about 90% of student athletes have at least one sports-related injury in their career. So pretty pretty high up there. And what we kind of know is that you can expect sort of different mental health impacts at the different stages of injury or illness. So when someone gets hurt initially or is sick and has to be out of their sport, we see things like a lot of fear and anxiety, feelings of loss, you know, for example, like missing a big game or missing out on a season. The anxiety often comes from these unknowns of like, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to lose my spot? We also see in this initial phase sort of uh, a lot of low mood where people are feeling kind of hopeless, even because they're just so upset that this has happened to them. During the phase where, so we move from, you know, the, the first few days after injury to kind of like having a plan and kind of knowing what their injury is, what the rehabilitation is going to look like. There we tend to see things like frustration, potentially expectations that things will move more quickly and then they don't, uh, which results in frustration some decreased confidence or value. If their value is tied up in their sport, their role on the team, we see those being impacted. Uh, I think it's really important to remember during this time that for people who are athletes, often their sport and ability to be active is their coping mechanism. And when that's taken away, not only are they dealing with this, this stress and this change, but also they don't have their normal coping to deal with that. So you know, being on the lookout during this time for increased anxiety, increased depressive symptoms, and also um, being on the lookout for eating concerns during this time. Again, when people go from being very active to inactive, we might see some changes to their body. And for athletes who are very, very conscious of their body, looking out for symptoms like restricting food or some body image concerns is important to just keep a heads up for so you can have some early intervention there. 
finding ways to help them stay active and involved with the team is often something that we suggest. You know, if they can't run, maybe they can still bike, maybe they can still help out on the sidelines, that kind of thing. Um, and then around the last phase, return to sport, here we see things like fear of re-injury and fear of performance anxiety. So, so just fear of getting back into it. Am I still going to be the same? We, so the fear of re-injury, there's sometimes a trauma aspect that plays into injuries. And actually, I'm going to have Chelsea talk more to that because it's her area of specialty. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important for providers that are working with athletes to think about trauma as, or injury as a trauma. And so when we have students who, you know, tear an ACL or tear an Achilles, anything like that, these are traumatic experiences that are highly emotional in the moments that they're happening. Um, Oftentimes there are many other people that are around when these things are happening. And so if we think about it from a trauma standpoint, when you're thinking about things like return to sport or even just their willingness to be able to like return to like practice or games or any of these things, we might anticipate that kind of fear response or that avoidance of, I don't necessarily know that I want to go back to practice. I don't necessarily know that I want to put my body in the same exact position that it was in when it got injured again. And so we think about things like sleep disturbance, mood disturbance, hypervigilance, any kind of like re-experiencing symptoms. So nightmares, flashbacks, any of those things that we oftentimes attribute to like a post-traumatic stress disorder is things that we could see after an injury. And so I think it's really important for people to be on the lookout for that. I think there are some protective factors that come with sport itself one of which is access to resources. I think also early intervention is super important. So if uh, medical professionals, if uh, mental health professionals can intervene at the earliest state, we can stop some of those symptoms that might develop and become more challenging for the, the individual later down the line. The other thing that I think is protective about sport itself is that there's a lot, there's not really a lot of space to avoid. So in like our general population of people, if something happens to you, you can pretty much avoid it if you really try, whether that means not leaving your house, whether that means not driving the car again, whether like there are ways around these things, but oftentimes the student is invested in being a student athlete. And so there is an interest in returning to sport and they're being exposed to the things that were happening generally around the time that they were injured. So that avoidance response is mitigated by exposure. So that's definitely a protective factor in terms of long-term symptom development related to post-traumatic stress. So just something to consider and, and recognize that oftentimes students will have a very big reaction that might seem disproportionate to other people, but I think injury is traumatic for our athletes. Um, The other thing to consider is that we can't always assume that injury is a bad thing. I think oftentimes we have this assumption that student athletes want to continue to be student athletes. And again, when we think about the complexities of all of the hats that they wear, all of the stress that they're under, all of the different ways that they're being pulled, sometimes an injury is a relief. Sometimes an injury is a, I don't have to do this anymore because I don't love it. And I haven't loved it for some time and this gives me an out. So I think that's also a a thing that we have to consider when we're 
working with athletes is considering that we can't make the assumption that they love it as much as we think that they do just because they're high performing or have innate ability. We have to be curious about their individual experience, their individual relationship to sport, because it's not something that's universal across the board. Building off what uh, Samantha and Chelsea are talking about, I think sport injury encompasses so many things. We talk about like a collaborative team. This is where like physicians and things and, and working with us, like just being honest um, and, and giving clear and like kind of understandable timelines. Uh, a lot of times I sometimes work with athletes who expect that when they tear an ACL, oh, well, this person recovered in six or seven months. And it's like, well, that's not always the case, right? Like we're usually talking about professional athletes who are their only job when they are injured is to recover from their injury. When we're talking about student athletes, they, they're wearing a thousand hats. And sometimes it affects their personality. Sometimes it affects the way that they're thinking, the way that they're feeling. Um, and it could start affecting the way that their grades are performing, the way that they're interacting with their social groups um, and all these different types of things. And, and going off the trauma aspect, that, that that one is so true because it really is. And especially if they've already recovered from an injury um, or they have a re-injury right after they come back, um, it can be one of the most exhausting things that I've experienced athletes going through. The idea of like working hard to come back and then maybe your first day back, or your first game back that you re-injure or you have a different injury and you know you have to start all back over again. Um, when we talk about like trauma responses, uh, I've worked with a few athletes who they're really scared to go back to the same area of the field or to the court, but the injury happens. So, so working on like things like visualization and imagery, on like kind of performing in that exact area um, is super important. That's like one technique that we can kind of use with that, but just building off of those already incredibly valuable points. Thank you all. That's a lot of perspectives. I think I hadn't considered, especially never assuming that an injury, it, it makes sense now that you've laid it out like that. I don't think I'd ever considered that. Um, I'd love to go back to both restrictive eating as well as the trauma aspect of injury and explore that a little further from a from a physician perspective. What language can we be using with regards to both of those topics to not add flames to the fire and to try and help our patients the best that we can? I think when we're talking about trauma specifically, I think it's labeling injury in that way. And so that within the culture of athletics, again, physical and mental distress can sometimes be minimized for the sake of wanting to appear strong, competent, capable, and ready and willing to participate at any moment. And so I think, you know, labeling as the provider, being comfortable saying, this was a traumatic experience for you. How are you feeling about this? You know, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Asking all of those kinds of questions because those things can change. But I think a willingness to label it as such, I think it can put into perspective for the student the seriousness of it. And if you're taking it serious, it allows them to look at it in a way where they can feel comfortable acknowledging the distress that they are ex potentially experiencing from it. And so it's not like something that's like, ah, oh, it's just a small thing, or it's a small ACL tear, or it's a small this, and you have to have this major surgery. It's a big deal. And it should be, um, it should be spoken about as um, such. Sam, do you want to say anything about the disordered eating stuff? Yeah, yeah, I can talk to that a little bit. I think that this is really, it's important for physicians to be, or all of us to be thoughtful about our language when it comes to this, because often disordered eating, you know, eating disorders or just eating that doesn't necessarily fit into what we would think of as healthy for the person 
there's a lot of shame that surrounds these kind of behaviors. It's not something that people often want to talk about or be asked about. You know, I think all of this benefits from sort of a, a proactive approach where you're not necessarily waiting until you notice a problem. You're sort of saying this from upfront, like sometimes what we notice in athletes is that it's really hard when you're less active, you notice changes in your body. This is something that is natural. It happens. You go from being a very, very active, high level, you know, working out every single day to not being able to do that. And we expect some changes, you know, so if you notice you're having difficulties with this, if you notice things like thinking more about food than you you did before, or that you're changing your eating behaviors, it would be good to talk to someone about it. And I can help connect you to that person, you know? So I think that approach can be helpful rather than, you know, really directing questions or, um, you know, calling someone out in a moment when they're not expecting it. I was also just going to add two to that as well is that sometimes rather than talking about things like disordered eating, we might use the words like under fueling and use the terminology under fueling as a way to kind of have them understand that like your body needs a certain amount of fuel to do what it is that you need it to do. And depending on what it is that you do, that may change from one moment to the next, from injury to being fully, you know, participating. And so we look at it from, are you adequately fueling your body and talking about it in a way that feels a little bit less pathologizing. And so using the words under fueling, and that comes out of research about different kind of thoughts about eating concerns within athletes and thinking about the kind of implications of under fueling for like long-term concerns when it comes to athletes. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, And the terminology is super helpful. I think too, in the clinic, if you don't have a very close relationship with the patient and being able to use those open terms to help them uh, feel more comfortable divulging some of that information is really helpful. It's also easy sometimes in the office to snap into medical terminology and really remembering to to use layman's terms as well as using non-inflammatory language is always really helpful and practicing that so that you don't default to medical terminology, even though that's what you might put in your note or something like that. But you you separate the two so that we're not bringing people down when they're already low. And one other thing that we thought is important with the mental health and student athletes is the double-edged nature of social media. On one side, social media can raise awareness, get brands out there, um, help with the name, image, and likeness that's going on with college athletes. But on the other hand, it gives a platform for fans to say horrible things to others and bully that level. In your practices, how have you found that social media can affect athletes and what advice can you give to health professionals that our listeners could pass along? Yeah, I think social media is a wonderful tool when used properly. I think that I think that goes without saying. Uh, when athletes are posting on there, it's a great way to, again, get branding like we're talking about and get recognition, but it's also you're opening yourself up. And we talk about being vulnerable as a mental health provider all the time with everybody. Um, and athletes, when they're doing that, are being vulnerable. Uh, and I think it's important to understand that when you are being vulnerable, sometimes people don't understand what that feeling is like, and they don't know what that, that means. Um, so people feel free to have like we call them keyboard warriors, right? They're going to say whatever they want. They're going to say whatever is needed. And that's that's their prerogative. Everyone has an opinion. That's why they're free. doesn't mean we have to listen to them. Uh, so I think it's really important for athletes to kind of understand and remember that when you're putting yourself out there, you're doing it 
hopefully for yourself or you're, you're doing it for a, a good reason. And that sometimes no matter what you do in life, people are going to have something to say about whatever it is that you're doing, especially if they're jealous or envious or they wish they were, they were in your position. Um, it's just about, again, talking to athletes as people and helping them recognize that you're just a person. And also helping people who are making those comments uh, recognize that like athletes are still just humans. Uh, they are still just people who have the same exact emotions. They have the same exact kind of thoughts and feelings that we all do. They just have this ability to do something that we all wish that sometimes we could do. Um, so it's one of those things. It's, it's all about being honest and open. And also be careful what you put on social media. I mean, that's just one of the, the biggest advices I, I give to all my athletes is even though you're posting something that you might think is a good thing, usually run it by a few different people um, and definitely listen to the feedback that you get of the people that you trust because social media, it doesn't ever go away. So whatever you're posting could come back and bite you in the, uh, in the buttocks uh, at some later day, some, some later way down the line. So I think it's really important that we're always kind of vigilant about what we're, what we're posting on social media. Yeah, I echo a lot of what Andrew was saying. I think one of the main things we talk about is the importance of not placing your value in sort of these comments and how others are engaging with your posts, good or bad, right? And just understanding that the people who are commenting, in most cases, they don't know you, they're strangers. All they know is what you're putting out there and how they're interpreting that based on their own interpretation and biases. So really important to remember that piece. And sometimes, you know, when athletes are being affected by this, we say, well, maybe it's time to take a little break, right? Or sort of when are you doing the scrolling, right? Is it right before bed? Is this making it difficult to fall asleep? So just really being mindful of how they're using social media, when they're using it, how much they're using it. And if it's really linked to their sense of value, that's kind of some of the things we look out for. Yeah, I echo everything that Andrew and Sam have just said as well. And the other piece that I often talk a lot about with my students, athletes, is how social media is a curated highlight reel of anybody's life. And most people are showing the positive things that they are experiencing in life. And so I think on one level, it's important for student athletes to kind of be aware of the fact that just because they're looking at somebody else's feed and they are kind of experiencing that person is happy or that they have it all together, that's not necessarily true. So I think when they're comparing themselves in that way of feeling like others have it more together than I do, that can be a source of distress and being very mindful of the fact that, again, most people are sharing the highlights. They're sharing the positive things. They're not sharing the, you know, the millions of edits that they Put on this photo before they released it because they don't feel good about their body or, you know, the stress that they're experiencing in their own life, but they posted this picture smiling, you know, with their teammates because that's what they are trying to portray because that's the way that they're coping. So there's that piece. And then as it relates to comparison as well, I often talk about it in the context of body image and eating concerns as well. And so one of the things I think, um, a lot of time talking about with my athletes is are you following people that are representative of you in all of the ways so skin tone body type you know hair texture I think a lot of times we have these societal standards of what's attractive what's appealing and athletes have they sometimes tend to have like an archetype of what their body looks like based on what their sport is and so if I am a rower my body type is going to look very different than maybe a track 
long distance runner. But if I'm comparing and following these other people that have different body types than I do, and I'm expecting my body to look like their body, and it's not realistic based on genetics and based on what I do on a day-to-day basis, is that healthy consumption? Is that healthy comparison? Is it creating more distress for me? So oftentimes I'll have students kind of go through and do a cleanse and say, if you follow somebody or follow something that doesn't make you feel good, do you decide that you want to continue to follow that account, that person, if you find yourself comparing in a way that makes you feel inadequate, not good enough, any of those kinds of things. As it relates to medical professionals in general, I think when students are coming in with things like underfueling, eating concerns, again, being mindful of the fact that social media can play a role in how they're perceiving their body, what they, what they think is realistic for their body type. And so having the medical and scientific information to provide them with of saying, based on what you do on any given day, this is what your body needs to just be at its baseline and maintain. And so giving them real information about what is a realistic expectation for eating and what their body might look like based on what they're doing to kind of help them put some of those things into perspective um, can be really useful. And again, supporting them in seeking out mental health services if they're finding that social media is a, a source of distress or kind of like what Sam was saying, placing their value entirely in what people are saying about them and things like that. Yeah. And going off what Chelsea's talking about, I think it's also important that we remember that eating disorders and body image issues don't have a gender bias. They are just as prevalent in males as they are in females and in every population. Um, they are incredibly popular in athletics. Uh, and I think it's super important that one of my life goals is always to break down the male stigma of mental health and just all of that. Like it exists just the same. Um, and it's super important that we as men or if you identify as a male or anything, just talk about your feelings. It's really okay. Uh, and there's going to be there, there's going to be people there who are willing to listen to you um, and who want to help you. And I always talk with my athletes about this whole idea of like, it's not always what your body looks like. It's about what your body can do for you. Um, so I really, I really liked this idea of this under fueling. I think that's a really wonderful word because sometimes with athletes, you're, you're performing a task and sure you are huge, right? You're an offensive lineman maybe, but you, you see stories all the time about how guys talk about when I played in the NFL or I played at D1 level, I had to be big. I had to. And then when they are done with sport, transition out of sport, they change their entire diet because they recognize they can't live that way healthily down the line. So I think it's just important that we always remember that these things exist all over the place and that it's an issue that uh, isn't talked about, but that absolutely needs to be. Um, so I'm really glad that we've kind of spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about, about this issue. I think it's incredibly valuable. All right. I just want to say thank you to everybody for all of that input. I think it's all really, really helpful and um, important that we continue to talk about these things with regards to our student athletes and mental health and the way we as a multidisciplinary team can um, make our athletes lives the best that they can possibly be and make their care the best that it can possibly be. I'd like to thank Dr. Morales, Dr. Morris and Andrew Tosi for sharing your valuable time with us today. Um, and you, the listener, for doing the same. We hope you found this time valuable and that you'll join us again soon for the next episode of the AMSSM Sports Medcast.